Habakkuk 2, 2 through 4. And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come, it will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. Thus says God's word. Amen. You guys would pray with me. Father, thank you for the incredible opportunity of getting to gather in your name and worship you together as the body of Christ. Thank you for that incredible privilege, Lord, um, that we have the ability to worship freely, Lord. And I, I pray and I ask that this morning you would prepare our hearts as only you can to receive your word. Um, Lord, that that the word that is sown in us this morning might produce a harvest to your glory and your glory alone. Um, we ask that you would give us ears to hear, uh, minds and hearts to to comprehend, Lord, and, and our prayer is that we would um, come to love you and know you and see your truth and your beauty and your glory more clearly this morning. Pray that you would speak through me um, for the edification of your body. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You guys can have a seat. Um, it is good, as always, to be with you. Um, we are continuing this morning our series in the Minor Prophets, like we've been doing the last uh, few weeks. And it is our firm belief um, that the Minor Prophets, like the rest of the Old Testament, like all of Scripture, help point us towards Christ. The Scriptures, Old Testament and New, witness to us about the truth of Jesus and his gospel. So when Jesus is speaking to the two men on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24. And it says, In beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And so Jesus is not taking the disciples through the Roman road here. He's not teaching them from First Peter. Um, those books hadn't been written yet. They didn't exist yet. Uh, but Jesus is teaching them from the Old Testament, from the law and all the prophets, including the minor prophets. And I would like to think including the book of Habakkuk. So the minor prophets are not uh, some irrelevant, outdated books that carry no meaning for us today. But the minor prophets, like all of Scripture, are divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit and point us towards and help magnify Jesus Christ. Now, when I was a teenager, I did my best to read my Bible, um, like many of you, and I tried to read all the way through it from time to time, and I tended to get stuck where a lot of people get stuck. You know, you, you do great through about Exodus chapter 20, and then you hit the law, and, and you kind of 
kind of slow down. It's a little slower going. Um, and it's kind of similar in some of the minor prophets. I didn't have a whole lot of appreciation for the minor prophets at that time. They were, they were difficult to understand. For that matter, I probably didn't have a ton of appreciation for the major prophets either. Uh, because they can be hard to understand, and the prophets tend to use language and imagery that's difficult for us to understand in the 21st century. However, even as a young man, even as a teenager, um, there was always one book in the prophets that I was drawn to and that I kept coming back to, and that was the book of Habakkuk that we're going to be looking at this morning. And I love how the book of Habakkuk gives us as believers a clear and vivid picture of what it looks like to walk by faith, to live out our faith. How many of you want to be people who walk by faith, who live by faith? I hope all of you, right? I hope that's why we're here. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 7, he says, For we walk by faith. We walk by faith, not by sight. So it would be fair for us to say this morning that as believers, it's not just important, but it's critical that we be a people who walk by faith. But what does that mean on a day-by-day basis in the Christian life? To be a person who walks by faith, not by sight. That's kind of one of those Christian phrases that that we throw around a lot. Yeah, we walk by faith, not by sight. But what is it going to look like for me to wake up tomorrow, Monday morning, and go to work and walk by faith? faith and not by sight. And I believe that the book of Habakkuk gives us a clear answer for that question this morning. Habakkuk, whose name means to embrace, was a prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah. And he was ministering sometime, we don't have the exact date, it's not given, but he was ministering sometime in the early 600s BC. And that's about all that we know about him. We don't know uh, anything about his family. We don't know anything about his personal life. Uh, We do know, however, a fair amount of what is happening in the kingdom of Judah during his time of ministry. And Habakkuk would have been prophesying during the reign of King Josiah, one of the kings of Judah. And we know from the book of 2 Kings that this was a time in Judah of incredible moral depravity, highlighted by pervasive idolatry. This is the setting in which Habakkuk is prophesying, a time of idolatry, a time of injustice, oppression, wickedness in Judah. And Habakkuk is unique among the minor prophets in that he doesn't deliver messages from God to the people, but the book of Habakkuk records the dialogue between God and Habakkuk himself. So in that manner, it's very similar to certain parts 
of the book of Job. And as we're going to see, a lot of the themes are similar as well. So in chapters 1 and 2, this is just a little three-chapter book. In chapters 1 and 2, Habakkuk is going to express two complaints against God. And then in chapter 3, Habakkuk prays a beautiful prayer of faith and trust in the Lord and thanksgiving to the Lord. And, and what I want you to see this morning, I want you to pay careful attention to Habakkuk's attitude and perspective and how that changes from chapter 1 to chapter 3. So we're going to start in the beginning, Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, and it says this. Habakkuk is speaking. He says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. This is Habakkuk's first complaint. And Habakkuk is genuinely upset. And he's upset because the southern kingdom of Judah is full of sin, full of corruption, full of injustice. And if we look at 2 Kings chapter 23, and we're not going to read that this morning, but you can go and look that up later on your own. But if we look at 2 Kings 23, we get a glimpse of some of the wickedness and corruption that is happening in Judah during this time. We see that Judah is worshiping the false god Baal. And Baal was the supreme god of the Canaanites. We see that Judah is worshiping Asherah, the mother of Baal, who is oftentimes represented by some sort of wooden pole. So you read all throughout the Old Testament of the Israelites worshiping at these Asherah poles, which is just a pagan symbol of worship. And and both of these so-called gods, Baal and Asherah, are fertility gods. And so worship of these gods would oftentimes involve sexual acts and cult prostitution. And so you can see then why these gods are a continual temptation for the people of Israel, starting in the book of Numbers and onwards. Right? We have on this side, we have Yahweh who says, Be holy as I am holy, and be set apart, and obey my commands, and live with me in covenant, and let me be your God. And then over here, you have Baal and Asherah saying, Hey, come have a good time. Right? Worship can be fun. You know, come enjoy these temple prostitutes. And time after time, this was a stumbling block for the people of Israel over and over and over. Judah is also worshiping Molech, 
a god of the Ammonites. And the worship of Molech included child sacrifice. And so the people of Israel would literally offer their children in the fire in order to appease and gain favor with this false god. And on top of all of this idolatry, this was a time of material prosperity for Judah, where the rich were becoming richer by oppressing and taking advantage of the poor and the weak. So you can understand why Habakkuk, as a righteous person, is upset. He looks around and he sees rampant idolatry, sexual immorality, child sacrifice, oppression of the weak and the poor. And this is his complaint. God, where are you? Where are you? Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? How long shall I cry for help and you won't answer me? Or cry violence and you will not save? God, where are you? Why won't you act? Have you ever asked that? Have you ever wondered that? Habakkuk's faith is shaken. If God is truly good, if God is serious about his covenant relationship with Judah, then where is he and why will he not answer? And Habakkuk's conclusion is that there is no justice. Justice is perverted. And these are serious accusations, right? But if we're honest... Haven't we made similar accusations towards God? In the midst of trials and suffering, have you ever doubted God's goodness towards you? Have you ever doubted His promises? Have you ever been angry at God for not answering your genuine cry for help? God, help me! And silence. Habakkuk complains. And God answers. Chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. This is the Lord's answer. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. That's another name for the Babylonians. I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. So Habakkuk complains, God, where are you? Why are you not acting? How can you allow all of this injustice? And God's answer is this, Habakkuk, I am already answering your prayer and I'm doing it in a way that you would never expect. I'm answering your prayer in a way that you wouldn't believe even if you were told. And God tends to do that. Have you ever noticed? A lot of times when I pray, I want God to number one, answer my prayer. And number two, I want him to answer my prayer in the way that I want him to answer it. Have you ever noticed that? I want him to answer my prayer in a way that's convenient for me, right? So, for example, 
If I pray, God, help me to grow in my faith. How many of you have ever, ever prayed that, ever asked God for that? Right, that's something we should be praying for, right? So I, I pray, God, help me to grow in my faith. I want to grow spiritually. I want to learn to trust you more and more. And maybe what I'm picturing is some kind of awesome worship experience. Or maybe I'm going to receive some special illumination as I open the scripture. Or maybe I'm going to have some kind of vision of God. Or, or heaven will open up and the angels are going to start singing and the peace of God will just descend on me. And I'm just going to grow and trust God more. And, and whereas God might say, okay, you want to grow spiritually? Here's some suffering. And I say, well, Wait a minute, God. That—that's uh, not really what I had in mind when I was praying that. God is answering my prayer, but maybe not in the way I was expecting or hoping for. Right? Habakkuk says, "God judged the wicked in Judah," and God says, "I'm going to, and I'm going to use the Babylonians to do it." And that is not the answer that Habakkuk was expecting. The Babylonians were an evil, wicked, and brutal nation. They were the strong who bulldozed and preyed on the weak. They gather captives like sand. They laugh at every fortress. They scoff at kings. They are so strong that they laugh at anyone who makes any kind of attempt to oppose them. And their own might, their own strength is their God, is what they worship. They don't care about justice. They don't care about any other nation. They destroy the weak and they worship their own strength while they're doing it. And this is who God is going to send to judge the wickedness in Judah. Really, God? This is your answer to my prayer? Really? I mean, imagine if we were praying for God to punish and judge the injustice in our nation. And God said, okay, I'm going to punish your injustice and I'm going to send North Korea to punish you. Some of us would probably say, well, God, God, they have more injustice than we do. What kind of answer? That's not the answer I was expecting. What kind of answer to prayer is that? And that's what Habakkuk is thinking. God, that's, that's not what I was asking for. How is that an answer to my prayer? And that leads then to Habakkuk's second complaint. Chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. Habakkuk says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? 
Habakkuk says, God, you are from everlasting. You are eternal. You are holy. You are completely pure. So how can you allow a wicked nation like the Babylonians to punish, to swallow up a more righteous nation than they? Where is the justice in that? God, how can you allow the wicked to prosper while the righteous suffer? It's a common question throughout Scripture, especially we see that a lot in the book of Psalms. How can you allow the wicked to prosper while the righteous suffer? That's a question we struggle with too a lot, right? I mean, when I am, when I am faithfully trying to honor Jesus and pursue Jesus, and glorify Jesus in the way that I live, in the way that I use my time, my resources, and I face difficulty after difficulty, and trial after trial. And then I I look at my neighbor, and he's just having a good old time, and he doesn't care about anyone but himself, certainly doesn't care about honoring the Lord, and it just seems like everything keeps going right for him. Right? We, We kind of bristle at that a little bit sometimes, right? Well, come on, God, that's that's not really fair. I'm making an effort here. This guy's making no effort. You know, why is this guy proffering while I'm struggling and I'm suffering? That's Habakkuk's question. That's what, that's what he's accusing God of. How can you allow the wicked to swallow up the righteous? That's not right, God. And then in verse 14, Habakkuk charges God with making mankind to be like the animal kingdom. He says, you make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. The animal kingdom is survivist of the fittest, right? Um, the strong preying on the weak. So if you're here on the food chain and you bump into someone here on the food chain... You know, you're going to get eaten, and tough luck for you, right? Uh, if, if a lion takes down a gazelle, you know, we're not rushing over to Africa crying out, Injustice! How can the strong prey on the weak like that? That's not right. No, we don't do that. There's no justice in the animal kingdom. That's just the way it works. And Habakkuk is charging God with allowing mankind to operate like the animal kingdom does, without justice, without consequence for sin. Babylon lusts after and worships its own power and military might. And Habakkuk asks in verse 17, he says, Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? God, where are are you? When will we see your justice? When will you act? When are you going to show up? And here's God's second answer. And we read it this morning. Katie read it for us. Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. 
It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. The righteous shall live by faith. God says, write the vision. And vision here means God's prophetic utterance, what he's telling Habakkuk. He says, says, God is saying, write this down because it's going to happen. That's a promise. God is always just and God always fulfills his promises. Always, without exception. The problem is that God oftentimes operates on a different timeline than we do. Have you ever noticed that? And a lot of the time, we are way more concerned with getting God to sync up with our timeline instead of asking God for us to trust in His perfect timing. God's Word is always fulfilled. His promises are always fulfilled at exactly the right time. And guess what? You and I are not the ones who determine when that time is. God knows our hearts, and God knows Habakkuk's heart, and he knows our impatience, he knows our doubt, and he says, if it seems slow, wait for it. And God's promises oftentimes seem slow, right? God promised Abraham a son, and Abraham had to wait a long time for that. And I am sure there were days where Abraham was like, come on, God, you promised me. And I'm like in my 90s now. This is not looking good. God promised David a kingdom. And then David finds himself running around the wilderness being chased by a psycho king who wants to kill him. And there must have been days where David was like, God, do you remember what you promised me? Because this is not looking like what you promised. Israel had to wait hundreds of years for the promised Messiah. And this is what God says to his people who are waiting on his promises. He says, the righteous shall live by faith. Whereas the wicked are puffed up, nations like Babylon, they rely on their own strength, they hope in their own might, the righteous will live by faith, which means that they believe that God is going to do what He said He is going to do. So, we can boil down the first two chapters of Habakkuk like this. Habakkuk says, God... Where are you? Where is your justice? Why are you not fulfilling your promises? And God answers, I will fulfill all of my promises. I will judge the wicked. And the righteous will wait patiently for me to do what I have said I will do. God goes on then to pronounce five oracles of woe, five oracles of judgment against the Babylonians for their wickedness, 
for their idolatry. And after he has judged them, he closes with this statement. Habakkuk 2 verse 20. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. This is God's command to Habakkuk, to Judah, to the nations, and to you and I. God is saying, I am sovereignly ruling over the nations. I am sovereignly ruling over all creation. So be silent and stand in awe of me and who I am. Worship me. And as we come into chapter 3 now, Habakkuk is a changed man. He's a different person. In chapter 1, Habakkuk is angry at God. He accuses God of being unjust. And he feels the need to tell God how he should be running the world. But in chapter 3, Habakkuk starts out by asking God in verse 2 for a new demonstration of God's power, a new demonstration of his wrath towards the wicked and mercy towards his people. And then he goes on to recount and to remember in verses 3 through 15, God's saving work in Israel's past, how God has been faithful and delivered his people time and again, specifically at the time of the Exodus and the conquest of Canaan. He remembers, he recounts what God has done. Now, it's, it's amazing and quite distressing how quickly we can forget the work of God in our lives, right? I get frustrated reading the Old Testament, especially Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, some of these books. And man, the Israelites, they just drive you crazy, right? I mean, God literally parts the sea for them. And the next day they're like, oh man, remember those good days in Egypt when we had plenty of food? And and God, God literally rains bread from heaven down on them. He literally causes water to come out of a rock. And the next day they're like, oh man, wish we had some food and something to drink. Why won't God provide for us? And we read that and you just kind of want to smack them over the head. And then I think about my own life and it's like literally God can come through for me in a miraculous way. And the next day I'm anxiously wondering if God's going to provide what I need. Can you relate to that? It's not just me, right? Habakkuk remembers calls to mind what God has done for his people. And it leads to this response in verse 16. Habakkuk says, Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Now, is this the same guy as chapter 1? Right, chapter 1, Habakkuk says, God, how long do I have to cry out for your help? Why won't you listen? In chapter 3, he says, I will wait quietly for you to do what you've promised to do. The righteous will live by faith. Habakkuk goes from grumbling against God, accusing God and being angry at God, to seeing and understanding what it means to live 
by faith. And this is his beautiful conclusion. In chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. Some of the most beautiful verses in all of scripture. This is what Habakkuk says. After God has told him, he's sending the Babylonians to punish and destroy his kingdom. He says, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Just let, that, let those words sink in for just a moment. Now, you may not be very concerned about fig trees and sheep and cattle and the olive crop. However, for the people of Judah, this was their entire livelihood. This is, this is what they depended on to live. So a a more modern rendition of these verses would read something like this. Though the economy collapses and I lose my job and there's no money in my account and the supply lines fail and there is no food to be found anywhere, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Habakkuk is saying, God, if I lose everything, if I lose everything, yet... I will rejoice in the Lord and I will take joy in the God of my salvation. In the past when I've read those verses, I've always tended to read them as hypothetical. Like Habakkuk is saying, okay God, you know, if things happen to go south, if things fall apart, I'm still going to worship you. I'm still going to rejoice in you. But remember... Habakkuk has just been promised by God that the Babylonians are coming to judge Judah. And so these words aren't hypothetical. Habakkuk is anticipating that this is exactly what's going to happen, right? So Habakkuk is not saying if things fall apart. He's saying when things fall apart, when I lose everything yet... I will rejoice in the Lord and take joy in the God of my salvation. The righteous shall live by faith. Church, are we living in a way that consistently demonstrates faith in the living, sovereign, almighty God? Are we a people walking by faith, living by faith instead of what we can see in front of us? If I'm basing my life on what I can see, then things don't look too good. But if I'm basing my life on what God has promised, things are looking really, really good, right? And I would suggest this morning that living by faith, walking by faith, not by sight, according to the book of Habakkuk, means three things. Number one, it means trusting in the promises of God that He has given us in His Word. 
Secondly, it means waiting patiently for God to fulfill His promises according to His perfect timing. And finally, it means that as I wait, even in the midst of severe suffering and trial, that I worship, that I stand in awe and worship, trusting in His promises, waiting on His promises, and worshiping, standing in awe while we wait. Habakkuk looked around and he saw a world full of evil and injustice, but he believed God's promise of justice. He believed that God would make things right and he was ready to wait patiently for the promises of God to be fulfilled. And he was ready not just to wait, but to worship and magnify God even in the midst of suffering and trial. That is what faith looks like. If you are suffering in any way, faith is not blind optimism that God is simply going to take your suffering away if you pray the right prayer. Faith is believing God's promise that one day sickness and suffering will be no more. And in the meantime, that God will give you the strength to persevere, that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. James 1, that His power might be displayed in your weakness, Second Corinthians 12, that you will be able to be content in every circumstance, Philippians 4, and that your suffering is preparing for you an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, Second Corinthians 4. That's what faith looks like. And ultimately, living by faith, walking by faith, means believing and clinging to and standing on and waiting for the promise of all promises. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Probably some of the most famous verses in all of Scripture. Paul says, For I am not ashamed... Of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek or the Gentile. For in it, meaning the gospel, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. That sounds familiar. I feel like we've read that this morning. Um, Paul is quoting Habakkuk chapter 2. Faith means trusting in, clinging to, standing on the promises of God. And all promises, as the scripture tells us, are fulfilled in Christ Jesus. In Habakkuk's context... Faith meant believing that God would judge the wicked, like he said he would. For us today, it means believing in the gospel. Faith means believing in the gospel. The gospel being the good news of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ 
for the glory of God and the salvation of sinners. The gospel is the good news that through Christ and Christ alone, a worthless, wretched sinner like me can be reconciled to a holy and righteous God. And it's by faith that we initially receive and believe the gospel. And it is by faith that we cling to and trust the gospel day after day after day until we see Jesus in glory. And so what you need today, Christian, what you need today more than anything not the newest, greatest podcast or the newest self-help book or, you know, some kind of nice, positive, spiritual pep talk. What you need more than anything is to believe the gospel today. And what you will need tomorrow more than anything is to wake up and believe the gospel. We live in a world that is still full of injustice and evil, oppression and wickedness. And spoiler, there will continue to be injustice and evil until Jesus returns and puts everything right. And I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't be working or involved in promoting justice in our communities. The Bible has plenty to say about that. But what I'm saying is, as a believer, as a follower of Jesus, when you experience injustice, when you experience sickness, when you experience loss, when you experience persecution, when you experience depression and sorrow and hardship, what you need above everything else is to get on your knees and ask God to help you believe the gospel of His Son. Habakkuk lived in difficult and challenging times, as do we. And God's response to Habakkuk was not, okay, here's the ten steps to fixing everything. God's response was, the righteous shall live by faith. So whatever you're going through today, whatever's facing you tomorrow, for some of us very heavy, difficult things, God's word to you, God's exhortation to you is to trust his word, to trust what he has promised you, to wait patiently for what he has promised and to stand in awe of the Lord of all creation. The righteous shall live by faith. Let's pray. Father, I confess that I am so quick to doubt. Lord, and I look around and I see sin... I see evil, wickedness, oppression, injustice. It's all over the place. Um, 
And it's easy to despair. It's easy to wonder where you are sometimes, Lord. And, and I just confess my lack of faith. Lord, I want to repent of my doubt. Lord, I, I want to repent of when I go through suffering and trials. I want, to, I want to repent of my anxiety and my frustration that you don't always answer my prayers the way I want you to. Lord, and I pray that you would do in us a transformation like you did in Habakkuk. That instead of being angry and, and doubting and worrying and accusing you, that, that we would truly be able to say, God, we will wait patiently to, for you to do what you've promised you will do. Lord, and your promise is eternal life. Your promise is that you are making all things new. And so, Lord, would you in each one of us build up and strengthen our faith today, Lord? And, and if that means suffering and difficulty, then so be it, Lord, that we may grow and be sanctified and come to treasure you more fully. Lord, would you do that in each one of us today? Lord, take this word, apply it to our hearts, Lord. Anything that I said that wasn't from you, I just pray that that would be completely forgotten, Lord. But I pray that your word would dwell richly in us and that we would be changed. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, it's appropriate, as as we always do, that we... Um, conclude our service this morning by celebrating the Lord's Supper together, uh, by coming to the Lord's table, which is such an awesome privilege for us as the body of Christ. And you may or may not have, have thought about the communion table this way, um, but every time we come to the table as the body of Christ, that is an act of corporate faith. Right? Because what we are saying is, God, we, we believe, we trust in, and we stand on what you have done for us through the broken body and the spilled blood of Jesus. We believe in what you have done and what you have promised to do through the work of your son. And we will continue to come and celebrate that and hope in that week after week after week until we see Jesus face to face. So that's what we're going to do this morning. So if you are a believer, if you have trusted in Jesus um, for your salvation, then I want to invite you um, to come down and um, grab one of these elements, and then in a moment we're going to take it together. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup 
is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the cup together. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Now, if you would place your hands in a receiving position. I am going to read uh, the benediction for you from 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 10 and 11. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Go in peace.